Hello, hello. Normally I say good morning, but if you remember, Mike does uh, a year in review, and we always have a little snippet of the first thing the speaker says, so that's just a deposit in that event in the future (laughs) to confuse some people. So good morning. We're going to get set up here. Let me know if I need to do anything else to get my computer set up. We're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 24. We are continuing our study there. I always like to go back and listen to the previous speaker, make sure I didn't miss anything, and make sure I don't contradict them too much. And that was uh, our brother Aaron, December 13th. So we've had almost two and a half months off uh, from our study here, uh, hearing lots of Christmas messages and visiting speakers Uh, But now we do resume back into Acts chapter 24. So I'll give you just a moment to turn there. We'll open up in a quick word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this morning. Uh, We thank you for the intricate connectedness of your word and how uh, with study we can see how it tells one perfect story for us, God, and we thank you that we have access to it, the grace you've given us to uh, be in a, in a time and age where we have such easy access to the Word and such freedom and liberty to come together and study it. And we pray this morning that I would only speak uh, true things by the Spirit and none of my own thoughts, even if I uh, prepared them, if they are incorrect or not what needs to be said, that they would be skipped or forgotten uh, and that everyone here would be able to discern and divide your word this morning as we study. And we pray that the truth of it would encourage us and would be something that we apply to our lives to be changed and made more like the Lord Jesus. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Acts 24. There's two main things I want to look at this morning. Providence. We see the providence of God in this book. Uh, and in the well, this chapter and the surrounding chapters, amazing situations that Paul finds himself in that can seem so negative and so dangerous and so terrible, and yet we have such a clear description of God guiding Paul through these circumstances, the amazing providence of God, and Paul's reaction to it, the fact that he continues on and presses on with boldness and confidence most of the time. Uh, um, he has his, his moments in the flesh, but God continues to encourage him and bring him along. Providence is the main theme I, I want us to consider today. But there's such a, 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 an astonishing passage here about a procrastinator, a man who puts off the Word of God. He hears the Gospel from Paul himself. Right? You, you can't imagine a more clear Gospel than that from Paul. And yet he puts it off and delays and waits. But when we are following God and giving our lives over to God, we can definitely anticipate some struggles and trials and problems. I was a little bit tempted to call this message, What to Expect When You're Expositing, but I went with Providence and the Procrastinator instead. So, in the preceding chapters, in Acts 21... It says, after we had been there for several days, I believe they were in Caesarea at the time, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. 
He came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands, and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Well, my plan for that would be to not go to Jerusalem, right? If I was just warned, hey, you're going to be tied up and and bound and delivered, great, I won't go there, problem solved. But Paul hears this, well, if a, a true prophet of God has said that this is what's going to happen to me in Jerusalem, then I have to go to Jerusalem. So, Paul, fearlessly, no problem, he knows God's going to take him into Jerusalem, has confidence in that. So, let's quickly run through a little bit of context. Um, helpful in general, but especially since we've had two and a half months here uh, without re- review of, of our past few chapters here. So in chapter 21, Paul goes to Jerusalem. He enters into the temple and begins some rites of purification, following the law very closely and very carefully. There are some Jews from the province of Asia that come into the temple, and they stir up a riot, and they say that he's uh, defiling the temple and teaching uh, false teachings in the area and causing problems. Now, uh, Paul was seen in the city with a man, a a Gentile, a Greek, that was not allowed into the temple. But they assumed that Paul had taken him into the temple and defiled the temple. It was an assumption. So they stir up this riot. And the Jews all fall in line. They jump into this riot and they try to kill Paul. There's a man named Claudius Lysias, and he stops them. He's a a Roman commander in the area. He takes Paul into custody, a protective custody of sorts, trying to sort through the issue. You know, he doesn't want people killing each other at random. He wants to see, okay, what's the problem? Let's see if we can dispense some Roman justice. Paul uh, gets permission from Claudius to address this, this rioting body of accusers. Paul shares his testimony and explains that uh, the Lord Jesus came to him and appeared to him, right? Uh, one of the big problems here between, between Paul and the Jews is that the Jews who believe in the, the law and the prophets, all of the what we call the Old Testament scriptures, they believed that a Messiah would come, but Paul believed that Jesus was that Messiah. And more than that, that he had died and been risen, resurrected from the dead. And the Jews had a very high and mighty opinion of themselves and the exclusivity that they had in their relationship with God. And so Paul, uh, probably offending them a little bit, is talking about Jesus and all of these, the belief that he has in Jesus and Christ's appearance to him after resurrection from the dead. But this is where he really gets them. He really hangs them up when he says that God sent him to the Gentiles. So they were listening to him up to this point. But when he says that God sent him to the Gentiles to give them the true word and the knowledge, the riot breaks out again. And they start screaming and calling for his death. They're throwing dust. They're flinging things around. And Claudius protects Paul, probably a little bit confused by all this religious fervor. So he takes him, sort of protecting him from death, but is planning now to scourge him, to beat him, right? To tear his back open and whip him to question and find out what is going on. It sounds harsh, but it was permitted for Romans to to question someone by scourging. But not 
another Roman citizen. Romans were not allowed to scourge Romans. So Paul now says, I'm a Roman citizen by birth. And Claudius says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Didn't know this. What am I going to do? So he takes him to the Jewish high council, a group of Jewish judges, if you would, the Sanhedrin. It says, maybe you guys can sort this out. Let's figure this out. Well, the Sanhedrin was composed of a number of different Jewish leaders and figures, uh, and some of them were what we call Pharisees, and some of them were Sadducees. They shared many of the same beliefs in the law and the prophets, but they had a key point of difference, that are at least relevant to our context here. The Pharisees believed in resurrection from the dead. They believed in miracles. They believed in spirits and angels. The Sadducees did not. They did not believe in any resurrection, in any spirit, in any angel. And Paul notices this in the body, and, and for better or worse, he, he says, I'm a Pharisee, and uh, I'm being judged here because I believe in the resurrection, right? From this, 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 all of this talk about Jesus being resurrected from the dead. So he divides the Sanhedrin, and they start to argue amongst themselves. And what's the result? As we've seen several times in just the past couple of chapters, They want to kill Paul. It says that Claudius again steps in and actually stops them from tearing Paul apart. Now, right after this, right after Claudius stops them again from killing Paul, the following night in Acts 23, verse 11, the Lord stood by him, Paul, and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. Okay? So Paul's not doing, by our estimation, he's not doing too hot, right? He's been almost killed a few times, and God says, uh, I want you to do the same thing in Rome. Now, Paul, you know, he may have his moments in the flesh and wondering, uh, how is this going to come to be? But I imagine he felt fairly confident that he would then make it to Rome. If God told him he was going to go to Rome, that he could trust in that. And believe in that along the way. And we'll see in our story in chapter 24 how he made his way towards Rome. So, Claudius protecting Paul again. So the Jews plan, okay, let's sneak out and kill him. If we can't, three times now we've tried to kill him, let's sneak out and kill him. Claudius finds out about it. He sneaks Paul out in the middle of the night, I believe with 470 uh, soldiers to protect him. And uh, goes on to a place called Caesarea to see a higher up in the Roman government. His name is Antonius Felix. And we'll hear about him in our story by the name of Felix. Felix puts Paul under guard and waits for his accusers to arrive. These people that maybe some members from the Sanhedrin who had tried to tear him apart. Some of those who perhaps were in the ambush. A group of accusers will be coming along to present their case to Felix. So if you are interested in geographical context, we have Jerusalem where Paul was in the temple uh, following the law, going through some purification rites, and is now making their way to Caesarea. The scripture will say that he went down from Jerusalem, uh, even though we see geographical north here, Jerusalem up on a mountain. As you left Jerusalem in any direction, you were going down. Coming to Jerusalem, you were going up to Jerusalem, regardless of your orientation. 
So Acts 24, let's start in the first nine verses. And this is the accusation of Paul, okay? So Paul has been taken away by night, protected by hundreds of soldiers, and he arrives in Caesarea. And that says in verse 1 here, After five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Tertullus was essentially, uh, you could say a lawyer, a professional talker, right? A lawyer. And interesting enough, he'll live up to his name. It comes from um, uh, another word, uh, tertius, meaning liar or imposter. And he's here to give evidence, as we'll see. Verse 2, And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Now, it was in Felix's best interest to preserve the peace in the area. So, when there may have been major events, Felix perhaps stepped in and stopped and, and tried to bring peace to the land. But it was always out of political expedience, right? We don't have much biblical account of his activities, but we do have uh, extra-biblical accounts, right? Historians, Josephus, uh, Suetonius, Tacitus, that would describe Felix as a cruel man, a licentious man, a base man, an evil, wicked man. So... There's sort of a historical conflict with what we see from Tertullus here. So maybe Felix brought a little bit of peace, um, but he was well known for being a cruel, wicked man. So we see kind of the flattery of Tertullus here, the, the over-the-top exaggeration, stroking the ego of Felix. Verse 4, he says, Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, Jesus was from a town called Nazareth, and there's a very low opinion of the town of Nazareth. In John 1, uh, Nathaniel would say, can anything good come from Nazareth? And so rather than calling uh, Paul and the Christians, uh, even the word Christian or um, you know, followers of Jesus, they wanted to come up with a, sort of a more negative term, it seems. So they called it a, the sect of the Nazarenes. Verse 6. In the next few verses, some, uh, some translations sort of chop out part of these verses, but we'll look at them in their entirety and, and address them briefly as we go here. Uh, verse 6. He even tried to profane the temple, right? Remember, that was an assumption, a lie. That he had brought in, uh, that he had brought Greeks into the temple, and we seized him. Also a lie. We'll find out in a minute, right? Um, what Paul is going to say in a moment. Remember, uh, in the previous passage that we glanced at, that, that there are Jews from Asia that seized him in the temple, and Paul will say in a moment that those people aren't here. The ones from Asia that seized me, they're not even here. But Tertullus says we seized him out of the temple. And we wanted to judge him according to our law. Also, probably a lie. They tried to tear him apart. There wasn't a lot of judging going on. Verse 7. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. 
they were the ones causing the great violence, and Lysias responded enough to spare Paul's life. Verse 8, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all of these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, agreed, maintaining that these things were so. So Tertullus comes in, a lot of false accusations about Paul's behavior. And Paul stands up to defend himself. And there's a very different introduction that Paul gives here. It is more matter-of-fact, more confident, and much uh, less flattery. So, verse 10. Paul, after the governor had nodded him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. So, Paul's basically just saying, You've been here a long time. You know the area. I'm glad that you're an experienced judge so you don't have to take these knuckleheads for what they're saying. Verse 11. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. In other words, I was only there for 12 days and they say I was starting riots and causing dissension and profaning the temple. wasn't even there for two weeks. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. So he's not going to call it the sect of the Nazarenes. He's going to call it the way, right? This is the way. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, looking for, you know, what might we call ourselves, it seems that early Christians started to call themselves believers or followers of the way of Jesus. And then Paul says that this is how he worships God, according to the way, and he believes all things which are written in the law and the prophets. Believing all things, right? Even a good question for us. Now, we have more than just the law and the prophets now. We have the New Testament, right? The, the, inspired, the full inspired word of God now. But even in the law and the prophets, do we believe all of it, right? So often I've encountered um, not only non-believers who can't uh, bring themselves to accept certain aspects of the Old Testament, not even bad uh, or things they think are wicked, but just things they think are too unbelievable, a worldwide flood, things like this, right? They, they pick and choose what they believe from the Scripture rather than believing all that the Word says. I have a client uh, that I train, and it came up through a conversation that he mentioned that he had a fear of death, and that great segue, right? And so we started talking a little bit about the fear of death and how to avoid the fear of death and He said he believes in God and he believes the Bible, but he just has trouble believing that it's the only way. And so I I use that same verse from John 14 we just read. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And he said, well, yeah, yeah, I can't. No, that's not true. Well, you don't really believe God or any of the Bible. That's kind of a key verse, right? Uh, And so he kind of has picked and chosen his own system of beliefs, and it's not the Bible. I saw a commentator that called this Dalmatian theology or Dalmatian doctrine, right? Spotty, right? There's little spots that you like. 
And I couldn't help. I looked this up. Um, funny enough, I, I was thinking about uh, the, the Dalmatian doctrine, and I thought I'd look up Dalmatians. And the less spots, I don't know if this is true. This was the first result on Google. The, the less spots a Dalmatian has, the more likely they are to be deaf. I didn't know if that's true, but it was just too easy to say, right? The, the, more, the, the more we pick and choose and the less we believe in the scriptures, the more likely we are to be deaf and, and blind to what it says right there in front of us, right? Having ears, but being deaf and not hearing. But Paul says, I believe all of the law and the prophets. Verse 15, he says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Now, if there were any Sadducees present at this hearing before Felix, that is not who Paul was addressing with this comment. So either there were more Pharisees uh, present or he was simply addressing those that, that they also believe in a resurrection of the dead. At a minimum, they don't have a unified front against me. At least some of them agree with me that there's a resurrection of the dead. Verse 16 this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. What an undertaking to always be careful to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. It's so easy to know that you are, or, or to, to, to the best of our ability and understanding and effort, to be obedient to God, and yet sometimes that can offend the people around us. Now, there are cases where that's fine. If, if our clear obedience to God offends those around us, that's fine. But very often, I can find myself obeying God and in doing it in such a way that offends other people. And, and I don't have to change how I'm obeying God, but perhaps I give up a, a certain liberty or, or perhaps I say something in a different way so that I can be kind and less offensive to those around me, but I usually don't. And I'm usually just like, Psh, that's their problem, not mine. I'm obeying God, right? not the way we ought to do things, and certainly not how Paul um, was striving. Now, Paul offended lots of people, didn't he? Oh, yeah. But he always strived to have a conscience without offense, first of all, toward God and toward men. 17, he says, After many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. Acts 21, right? It says, uh, verse 27, some Jews from the province of Asia saw him in the temple and they stirred up the crowd and seized him. So in verse 19, back in, in 24 here, he says, they ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Roman law was very strict on making accusations. If you accused someone, you better show up in court to back it up. In fact, you could go on trial if you accused someone and didn't show up to court. And so Paul says, these aren't even the guys that seized me out of the temple and, and accused me. The, the people that accused me aren't even here. Verse 20. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council or before the Sanhedrin. Unless it's for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, Concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. So back in Acts 23, when he divided the Sanhedrin with this statement, that, that he was being judged because of his hope in the resurrection. So he says, that's the only thing that they have evidence of, is that I said that, and yes, I said that. 
So now we get to see Felix and the response of Felix and learn a little bit about him and his character. In verse 22, it says, When Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. I would argue that this is already the beginning of his procrastination. He has a lot. It's a fairly clear case that there's not really any evidence against Paul. Perhaps he's waiting. You could say he was waiting for Lysias to come down and sort of confirm what was said. But in any case, it seems, again, that political balance, that political expedience. I don't want to offend the Jews, but I need to keep the law. So how can I best satisfy everyone here? Not too concerned with justice, but making sure that he can keep everyone in his favor. Now, we'll see in the coming verses. I don't know that Lysias was ever actually sent for. I don't know that he ever actually came. It is also funny to think of the timeline at this point back in uh, 23 uh, chapter 23 when the Jews made a plot to ambush Paul to kill him they swore that they weren't going to eat until he died it's been at least five days at this point probably six by now so either they're hungry or liars by now but and spoiler I'll jump ahead uh, he's held here for two years so they all died of starvation and also think think of, again, the, the test of Paul to trust in God. God saying, you're going to end up in Rome. But Paul heard about this plot to kill him as well. Now, imagine yourself. If you heard that one person was planning to kill you, kind of scary. Now imagine that person swore that they weren't even going to eat until you were dead. Scarier. Now imagine it was 40 people that swore that they were not going to eat until you died. But God said he was going to go to Rome. So did he have any fears of that i don't know we don't see it in the scripture i'm sure we've seen paul in the flesh and being worried and concerned and god encouraging him but i would be very scared if 40 people were starving themselves until they killed me verse 23 so he commanded the centurion to keep paul and let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide or visit for him it's not a bad prison experience. 24. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, Drusilla, depending on your source, was 17, 18 years old. And she was already married. But Felix just wanted her. And so he took her. Uh, as his third wife. So, again, not a great guy from what we can gather. And we'll see that Paul's going to um, address such character traits when he speaks to Felix. Verse 25. So now Felix and his wife, Drusilla, are, are sent, have they sent for Paul to hear more about the faith in Christ. Right? I don't know what Drusilla's beliefs were. She was Jewish, so... A good Jew would have believed in the law and the prophets and perhaps had curiosity about Jesus and, and the way or the sect of the Nazarenes. We don't know for sure. But he sends for Paul. In verse 25, Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, 
Felix was afraid, or a better translation is that Felix trembled. And he answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. So Paul, we don't know exactly what was said here. It'd be an interesting dialogue to hear. They were reasoning, right? First uh, Peter 3.15 tells us to always be ready to give a defense for the reason for the hope that is in us. Christianity is very reasonable, right? There's a, there's a lie going around through the world that Christianity is this unintelligent crutch. I would suggest that Christianity is, is intellectual high ground for that matter, but that's another topic. Christianity is very reasonable. So Paul seems to give this um, true gospel, and it seems to be very pointed right at Felix. Uh, it's about righteousness, right? From what we've seen, Felix is not too concerned with righteousness. He's delaying things. He seems to be managing his political position. About self-control. It was his third wife that he had stolen from a married man. And about the judgment to come, right? Felix the judge being warned about a judgment to come. Well, apparently this struck a chord with Felix because he was afraid. He trembled, right? So we have to give Felix, uh, I wouldn't, maybe we won't call it credit. Uh, we have to recognize that he was, at this point, not so hardened that he didn't hear or, or understand or believe. There was something about the gospel that managed to hit him in such a way that it caused him to be overcome with fear and realization. But how does he respond? He says, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. In verse 26, it says, Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. So there's a moment that Felix is trembling with fear. But it seems that over time, he was able to continue these conversations with Paul. We don't see that he continued to tremble with fear. No, now he's looking for a bribe. He's looking for money. How long did this go on? Verse 27, after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix. And what's the last thing we really hear about Felix? And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So he never got his bribe. Uh, we don't see any account of him ever receiving the gospel or, or, or coming to the Lord. Could have happened later in his life. And he leaves Paul bound. Again, he managed to finish his whole career without making a decision, even on Paul. And later, Felix would be put on trial and, and there would be... Um, he manages to avoid the death penalty. Was it because he had a little bit of favor with the Jews from a move like this? I don't know. But at this point, where Paul is left in prison, it's been two years, he still hasn't made it to Rome. So Paul, no doubt Paul was ministering to all of those around him, sharing the gospel. Who knows how many uh, seeds planted or souls won during this time that Paul was speaking to Felix, and uh, his friends were allowed to come and go with him, or come and go from him. But he hasn't yet made his way to Rome, and he knows that this is God's plan for him. 
And we'll look at a verse in uh, Acts 27 as well, where we see a little bit more about God's plan for Paul in, in Rome. But considering Felix, there was one commentary that I, I just had to include in here about people who, you know, there's lots of different types of rejection of the Lord Jesus, or at least methods of rejecting him. Some very openly claim to be atheists, I deny the Lord Jesus, so on and so forth. Others, uh, I have a friend who, who says, you know, maybe, maybe one of these times that I hear the gospel, it'll be the right, the right one. Maybe that's the one I need to hear. It just hasn't happened yet. So close, and yet such a barrier between coming to the Lord Jesus. And one commentator said, your life will be straightened out in one of two ways, either by the righteousness through faith in Christ Jesus or through rigor mortis, right? You'll get straightened out one way or another. Rigor mortis, that stiffening up of the body at death. So, Paul, left by Felix, uh, a new uh, judge, governor would come in, Festus, um, summarizing a couple chapters and a couple sentences. He would go before Festus. He would go before King Agrippa. Uh, he, Paul would say, I appeal to Caesar. I want to go talk to Caesar. It's very um, not redundant. We get to hear Paul's defense over and over in the coming chapters. He has the same story. I didn't do anything wrong. They seized me, this and that. And Paul says, I'm going to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. And so they put Paul on a boat eventually, and they, he's making his way towards Rome, towards Caesar. And they're on the boat, and the boat uh, hits a, a terrible storm, days-long hurricane type of situation. The sailors and the other prisoners, they all think they're going to die. And Acts 27, right in the middle of that, Paul says, For last night an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar. And indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So take courage, men, because I believe God that it will be just the way it was told to me. So the the providence of God, right? Not to mention the preceding chapters and all the suffering and almost dying and possibly actually dying that Paul went through. Uh, going into the temple, being taken out, almost torn to pieces, giving his testimony, almost being killed and torn to pieces, going, almost getting scourged, uh, going to the Sanhedrin, almost being killed, uh, going to Felix, giving a defense, two years in prison, all perfectly, exactly the path, the path and the plan that God had to take him to where he was going. We don't have the uh, biblical account that I know of of Paul getting to Caesar, but man, we can trust that it happened. An angel of the Lord assured him, and he says, I believe God that it will be just the way it was told to me. Right? God, uh, each, each believer, right? God has intentions and plans for us as well. That he, we were created in, in Christ Jesus for good works. There's an old um, story and I don't know the origin. It might have been, I like to think it was C.S. Lewis because I like C.S. Lewis, but maybe he got it from somewhere else. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, which is totally imagination. Um, but it's an idea about sort of the demonic tricks and tools that are used to deceive people. So he sort of personifies demons and maybe 
his imagination, C.S. Lewis's imagination about how demons might plan and trick and mislead people. And there's a meeting of several demons, and the, one of the demons suggests that we, we, we trick people and we convince them into believing there's no heaven. There's no, nothing. There's no afterlife. There's nothing more than what we have right here and now. And, you know, so the demons are murmuring and they're agreeing with him. And another demon stands up and says, well, I've got a better idea. They let, let them think there's a heaven, but let's tell them there's no hell. We'll convince them that there's nothing bad after life, that eventually you all make your way to the right place. You know, there's a lot of Christians that believe that, or, or professing Christians that believe that. I suppose they could be believers. Won't say it. You can talk to me afterward. But there's a lot of people that claim to be Christians that don't believe in hell. I have some friends that were uh, drawn that way, and they they really got to do some fancy scripture juggling to defend that point. And it's not good juggling. But it really takes the pressure off, right? Someone like Felix or someone that we might speak to. Oh, there's no hell. But there was a, a third demon that stood up and he said, no, no, no. Everyone can believe in heaven and they can believe in hell. Let's convince them that there's no hurry. And that is the, the plight of humanity so often, right? We may find people that believe in an afterlife and they're not quite sure about it or maybe they do believe that it's heaven and hell, right? I, I mentioned the, the, the friend that I have that seems to acknowledge and believe these things and says, who knows, one of these times maybe I'll, I'll, I'll come to the Lord or, or whatever that means, he might say. But so many people are in no hurry. And this is most dangerous when a, when a soul is in balance. But we live that way very often too, that there's no hurry, right? That we have a long, full life to serve the Lord and um, we don't redeem those minutes and those moments and those the time that we have, right? God's got a plan, a providential plan that will guide us through ups and downs. And uh, often in my life, I've seen the outcome of something and then I realize, oh, everything else that led up to this now makes sense. But when I'm in it, it's a real struggle to believe that, and not necessarily that I'm going to get what I want, but that God has a plan that's leading to something that will be a result. It just seems like a mess when I'm in it. But how much more agonizing and painful and, and shameful is it if we're distracted and you know occupied with other things and not in any sense of urgency? And and as those things tie together, is right should be our sense of urgency to convey urgency to the world around us, right? And we see here the sad story of Felix, who seems to have had. Uh, a conscience that was seared, right? The scripture talks about a conscience that can be burnt or cauterized and, and stop responding to the gospel, right? Paul initially tells him about righteousness and self-control and the judgment that's coming and he trembles with fear. And then as he goes on, he just wants some money from Paul, it seems. But Paul, right? He has a, he was always trying to keep his conscience clear without offense towards God and man. So the encouragement I don't think any of us have had a life as rough as Paul's. I've had a, not a very rough life. I meet some people and they talk about the things that they went through and I'm always amazed because I really haven't had any, any major, major issues. But I'm pretty confident that none of us have had a life quite like Paul's. I could be wrong and I'm sorry if that offends you. But 
I mean, Paul was almost killed all the time, right? And beaten and stoned to what they thought was death and, and so on. And yet, trusting in the providence of God, he was able to continue and continue and continue. So that's the... My, my hope for all of us is that we would be encouraged to know God's plan, especially if, if we don't kick against it, right? We don't resist it. We submit to the will of God and, and dedicate our lives and try to use our time in a sense of, of urgency and honoring Him that God's providence will lead us through to His plans for us, even though it might be unpleasant and painful, right? Ultimately, continued Closeness, walking with the Lord, faith, perseverance, trusting that God has that intention for us and that we might be convicted uh, to convey that urgency to the world around us, right? There is a heaven, there is a hell, and they're very, uh, in the grand scheme of things, there is a hurry and there may be an extremely uh, coming urgency, right? We don't know at any moment how much time we have left. We may not get through the end of this message before the, the Lord returns, uh, which the end of that message is right now. So let's close in a word of prayer, um, and uh, we'll see if we get through the prayer before the Lord returns, right? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for, uh, again, this time and the word of God that we have, where we can see illustrations and examples, um, and we need that. There's There's so much in the Word of God to illustrate and help us get it through our heads, the truth of the Lord Jesus as Messiah, fulfillment of law and prophets, and His resurrection from the dead, and His offer of salvation and grace to us, and His the Holy Spirit and the, the offer of God to guide our lives and take over control of our will for us if we would but submit to Him and be in prayer and give ourselves up to Him and stop um, being consumed with our own priorities and our own plans and our own efforts that we would, uh, I pray that we would very much be aware of of each moment passing that we would submit, submit and trust, that we would submit and trust to the providence of God and we would be um, impressed that our conscience would be uh, tender and sensitive, that we would always seek to avoid offense towards God especially, but towards man, that our only offense toward man would be the gospel itself, and that we would convey that urgency and that sense to them, the world around us, that you've uh, placed us in and around, that we might share that providence and that grace and that offer of mercy uh, to them. So I pray that you help us to uh, be encouraged by that and be moved and motivated by that, God, and we pray that we have safe travels on our way home until the next time that we are able to meet together again. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.